Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. A segment of the church believe that we have replaced Israel. And so whatever is happening over in Israel right now uh, really isn't a biblical concern. And we don't feel that way. In fact, we know that the Word of God tells us that we are to pray for Israel and to uh, know that Genesis 12.3 tells us, from the Lord speaking to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So I want to be on the blessing side of the Lord, even if there are millions of Israelis in Israel right now whose heart truly, they don't know the Lord. Israel is a, a very secular society and there are some in the church that saying that that is not the Israel of the Bible. And I look at it and I think, they may not be, but God has the nation right where they're supposed to be in fulfillment of end time events. And so I had mentioned to Brian on the show that I do a once a month prophecy update. And I did not tell him that I do it a little differently than some of the other prophecy updates that's out there. Some Calvary pastors and other pastors who do it that's outside of the Calvary Chapel ministry. I I've always viewed myself as a teacher, so I don't want to just stand up here and talk about events and pick and choose verses maybe that go with it. But I've always, and I've done this for several years now, um, when I started doing these, I choose a passage of Scripture and we go through the passage. And we've been going through First and Second Thessalonians. We're finishing it out. I didn't plan it this way. It just happens to be. We're finishing out the end of the month, end of this year, uh, finishing out the chapter tonight. And we know that I didn't plan it this way because I didn't plan for a broken neck and two months off and all that because that would have had me finishing this much earlier. But the timing is perfect. And Paul has been talking about, and this is something I was thinking about as I was driving over to church this morning. When just thinking about the overall passage of First and Second Thessalonians, we get a lot of end times prophecy being named and mentioned, and we talk about it, and we turn to these passages as key points of doctrine concerning eschatology or the doctrine of last things, uh, such as in First Thessalonians, we find these things. Paul wrote about our position of waiting for the Lord's return, who will deliver us from wrath to come in chapter 1, verse 10. Or of our being caught up, that Greek word harpazo, uh, to be with the Lord forever. That's where we get the uh, rapture from, from this Greek word harpazo that was translated into the Latin as raptus, that we from Latin to English, rapture. But it is a Greek word that means to be snatched away by force or violently snatched away. And that comes to us from 
chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He also spoke about the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And that believers are not appointed to wrath again in chapter 5, 9 through 10. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he wrote of Jesus' coming with mighty angels and with a flaming fire to judge unbelievers, to be glorified in and admired by his saints in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. He teaches of the falling away that will happen before the son of perdition is revealed, referring to the Antichrist, chapter 2, verse 3. He also tells us of the Antichrist exalting himself in the temple of God to be worshipped as God, chapter 2, verse 4. This is why we say that there has to be a third temple built because the Antichrist cannot exalt himself in the temple of God if there's no physical temple of God for him to do that. He teaches of these things, speaks of lawlessness in the last days. I feel like we're living in those times. He speaks of the restrainer, of the workings of Satan coming with power, signs, lying wonders, and deception in chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. And yet at the close of his letter, and what we're looking at tonight, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, picking up in verse 6 down through verse 18, he just talks to the church. There's nothing mentioned about any end times, the day of the Lord, Harpazo. He's spoken all about that. And I think this is somewhat important, and this is the point that kind of formulated in my mind and actually helped to um, put this message together, although I'd already been working on it. It kind of gave me that overriding theme for tonight of how to conduct ourselves as believers in these last days. In this passage, Paul didn't talk about end-time events, but he talked to the church things that they were not doing, things they should be doing. Um, he talked to the church, how they should be the church in the times that they were living in. And I think that's what the Lord wants us to hear as well tonight, how we as the church should be conducting ourselves in these last days. I titled this to make ourselves an example because Paul talks about his example to the church of Thessalonica and tonight he'll give instruction in dealing with disorderly members within the church. And these were the brothers and sisters who were taking advantage of the generosity of the people of the Lord by allowing others to supply their daily needs instead of working to supply their own needs. And while we are to help those who have need, and sometimes uh, there are those who are unable to meet their own daily needs, they have just a situation where they just need help from the Lord's church, that's good. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those who are taking advantage here. And they were able to work and to supply them their own needs by getting a job. In fact, in Ephesians 4.28, he'd hit this topic again. He'd say, let him who steal, or let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And so it's a whole different mindset in the world of 
the church in Ephesus, there was an issue going on there. In Thessalonica, there was an issue going on there with people having idle hands. And in our chapter tonight, he'll talk about the idle hands leading to people being busybodies. And uh, that is what not what the Lord has called us to. So how we are to properly walk in these days that we find ourselves in to those who are outside, those in the world, and those within. And it appears that not all the believers there in Thessalonica got the message. So Paul expands on this as he closes out his letter. And we begin with an apostle's command, verse 6. He says, But we command you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So Paul now usurping his authority as an apostle by evoking the name of Jesus Christ to remind them that he was writing under the authority of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, and I'll add the woman, the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so our foundation to be built on faith, built upon the sure word of God, but it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that we may be complete and equipped in this life. So Paul and his co-authors, Silvanus and Timothy, commanded them to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, not according to tradition, which he had received from us. And so this was the command. Withdraw from those who are walking disorderly, not according to the tradition that they have received from us. Remember, in, at this time, they didn't have the New Testament compiled like we have. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, but um, I'm not sure how much of the Hebrew Scripture was available to Gentiles in a Gentile city far away from Jerusalem. But they did have the teachings of the apostles, and the Bible was being composed, and they had letters, and Paul was writing and bringing instruction as Peter wrote and gave instruction as Jude and James and John and Matthew. It was all being compiled at this time, so tradition for them meant a little bit more than it may to us in this sense of it wasn't just speaking about well, this is what we do every Christmas. We set up the manger in the back of the church. It's a tradition that we have around here, and it's true. We have done that for several years. But this is more pointing to the Word of God that has been expounded to them and also displayed before them. And so he says to withdraw. It's a Greek word that means to send yourself away from. And Jesus teaches us about church discipline. At times it is necessary, but Jesus gave us a three-step process to this discipline. 
in Matthew 18, 15 through 16. And step one, Matthew 18, 15. I may have said Matthew 8, but it's Matthew 18, 15. This is the first step. If you have a brother who sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So if you have an issue with a brother or sister, go to that person. And Jesus said, go alone. Um, if the issue, if you're of the opposite sex and the issue of a man with a woman and a woman with a man, then I would counsel you to go and take others with you just because of not wanting to put yourself in a worse situation. But if you can deal with the situation, just deal with it. But if not, if the brother won't hear you, step two, verse 16 of Matthew 18, if he will not hear you, take one or two more with you, by that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And then the final step, if he refuses to hear, verse 17, tell the church, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. So Paul hasn't taken it to this extreme in Second Thessalonians. He did say to withdraw from them, but he said, don't treat them as if they were an enemy. We're going to get to that. So Paul is at a point to where discipline is starting to be laid out for the church, teaching them that you need to be careful about your conduct, who you're hanging out with, and, and this is a principle that we all can have. There's situations that, um, you know, there's situations where it's just not good for us to get in at certain times. And um, I was thinking specifically, it just popped in my head when I was a brick mason down at Old Orchard Mall. Um, the guys were going out. We were at a shopping mall. And uh, there was a pub there, and it was more of a pub restaurant, so I felt a little better about that. And I'd never done this with any of the guys before, and they invited me, and you said, I just said, you know, I'm going to have a Coke. And they said, well, yeah, we know. And we just sat down and we had a drink before we left that day. Um, and, you know, you have to really consider those situations. Is that a good place for a preacher to be? Um, well, it was at that time I was able to talk with one of the guys for a while, and you just have to be considerate about the situations, the surroundings, and know um, if this is drawing you away from Christ or if it's a place where you're able to minister to others about Christ. And, um, you know, they they knew me, and they didn't even question whether I'd have a cold one with them in that sense. They knew it wouldn't happen. But um, they were also friends of mine. And so we found a place of compromise. So Paul explains the reason for their withdrawal here in this situation was that these were brothers who were walking in a disorderly or irregular fashion among the believers. And they were also walking against the traditions which they had received from the apostles. So traditions, again, not referring to the customs that a church might have developed over the last 2,000 years, but the inspired teaching of God's word, the practices of the apostles that they taught to the new fellowships there. 
In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he used that word again, traditions. He said, therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold to the traditions which you were taught either by word or epistle. So either we spoke this tradition to you or we wrote it to you, but stand fast in it. That was the call, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And by chapter 3, we discover that there were not there were some who were not standing fast. So I was thinking about that in our culture today, and this may be a little bit of that prophecy update side of the message. And in three of these points, I'm just going to wrap it up with some thoughts that came to me. And this was the thought that came to me, exclusiveness or inclusiveness within the church today. And uh, we have come to the place in the church today that we know that the church has softened their position against sin and how they talk and speak about sin, and they want to appeal to people. And so they'll change the language, maybe even change the language a little bit of the word of God to soften what they might deem uh, the harshness of God's word. They may change words altogether that we as church people, and they'll talk about this um, in writings or in seminaries, that we as church people, we've developed this language that people coming into the church don't understand. But, you know, my first day in Greek class, I didn't understand anything. (laughs) But I was able to learn by attending class and by studying And so people can come to the church. They'll hear things perhaps they'd never heard before, language that they haven't heard before. Like I'd mentioned the word herpazo um, or rapture. Maybe that's new, but it doesn't mean that you can't learn the meaning behind these words. So I was thinking about this. I, I looked up and I found a couple of things that I thought were was interesting to me. Here was an article that was put out, um, actually written by gotquestions.org. And uh, the title of it was Inclusivism or Exclusivism. And so I had wrote the thought before I started looking for it, and they were right down the same line. Writing this, the exclusivist and the inclusivist debate centers on two questions. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? Number one. Or number two, The second question, is faith in Christ required? Or to put it another way, is personal faith in Jesus the only way to heaven? That's exclusivism. Or did Jesus' death provide salvation for some who do not believe inclusivism? And so they just kind of set that up and then went on to say inclusivism is the view that people actually appropriate God's gift of salvation only on the basis of Jesus' atoning work, but that the sinner need not believe in the gospel in order to actually receive his salvation. Inclusivism teaches that Christianity is the only true religion, including the belief that God, that Christ, is the only Savior of men, but that this salvation could be made available through other means, other than explicit faith in Christ. And so we find in the culture of our world today, in the church culture today, 
even though Jesus tells us in John 14:6, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me, there are those in the church saying, yeah, but... And when they have a yeah, but on the words of God, they're actually saying, you know, Jesus, he really didn't have a vast understanding at that time. And, I, and they're kind of saying, we're smarter than Jesus was. And uh, that's pretty much where I just need to stop listening to people when they think they're smarter than Jesus. Uh, the creator of the world and our savior of our, our lives, that uh, if Jesus said he is the only way, then he is the only way. It is an exclusive statement. And so our belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation has, has the heart of evangelism. It should give us that desire to share our faith with others. So this caused me to think about the youth and uh, something that was written about. This comes from Again, it comes from Got Questions, but there I've seen it in very uh, several different articles. I just pulled this information from them because Barna came out with a poll, and also USA Today uh, came out with a poll this year about young people, and Got Questions wrote about it, and I read it in other sources too. I just thought they kind of wrote it very well. And this is what they said, Why and the title, Why Are So Many Young People Falling Away From Faith? And two studies conducted by both the Barna Group and USA Today found that nearly 75% of Christian young people fall away from the faith and leave the church after high school. One of the key reasons they do so is intellectual skepticism. But how many of these youth actually how were they taught the Bible in their homes or in their church? Statistics show that children spend an average of 30 hours per week in school where they're often taught the ideas that are diametrically opposed to biblical truths, evolution, acceptance of homosexuality, etc. Then they come home for another 30 hours per week. They spend in front of the TV or they're bombarded by commercials, sitcoms, uh, video games, uh, connecting on social media. In contrast to this, they spend weekly in the church classroom 45 minutes, given the amount of exposure and worldly influences, and they had a total of 60, week, 60 hours versus 45 minutes, then it's not surprising that our youth are falling away from the faith. Many of our youth they're walking disorderly and not according to the tradition of God's word because they have not been properly taught in their homes. It begins in the homes, but also in their churches. Another study at Fuller found that most church youth group programs tend to focus on providing entertainment and pizza rather than building up young people's young people in their faith. So, we have a struggle in the church today, and it is evident, as we'll see when we get into this next point. So we began with the an apostle's command, and now we have an apostle's example. Verses 7 through 9, he says, 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So the best examples that we can have are living examples in this life. Paul, Silas, Timothy, not only taught them the word of God, they showed them how to live according to the word of God. Paul would write, and I love this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, 1, uh, in the NIV, that's where I first learned it. It says, follow me as I follow Christ. In the New King James, what I'm teaching from tonight, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And it's through fixing our eyes on Jesus that we learn to walk as he walked, but also it's how we grow in our faith and how we can display our faith before others. Again, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children to walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. Be imitators of God. So in one place, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In another place, Paul says, imitate God. Walk in love as Christ also loved us. And let God be your example. And I, I think both are true for some people. Um, they're not sure how they should imitate Christ or imitate God. And so we need to find those godly examples in our lives. It could be a male or a female. It could be someone um, for me, like my dad and my mom had been in my life or Others that came along in the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, the late Pastor Chuck Smith was one that I still listen to his messages, even though he's been gone with the Lord for a number of years now, because he had something that I still want to catch, I want to hold on to. And so their example, Paul, he said, we have not lived disorderly. That's the second time he've used that word. There are those who have been disorderly. And he said, we're not disorderly. It, it means that we haven't behaved out of order, nor did we take anyone's bread free of charge. We didn't take advantage of our position as apostles, but we were examples of how they were to conduct themselves. In John 13, 15 through 17, Jesus said, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done. And now this is when he was washing the disciples' feet, but still he sets the example. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So follow the example of Christ. Be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of those believers in Jesus Christ who have stood the test of time and they they are worthy of following. In the church of Thessalonica, some of the brothers and sisters had stopped supporting themselves. We find that they began living off the generosity of others. They had this twisted view of eschatology. Some were teaching that Jesus had already returned. Others thought that they had missed the second coming. 
And Paul wrote these two letters to straighten them out on those issues. But also here, practically, he tells them that as believers, we need to be about the Father's business and about life. Like Jesus said in Luke 19, 14, do business until I come. We have a responsibility in this life until the Lord comes. We talk about last days and uh, that the Lord could come at any time. We're to live with that expectation. But one of the key moments that stood out for me was in, back in 1988 when there was a book that was written titled 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. And a friend of mine preached that Sunday and of that the next day or two, so it was from Sunday to Wednesday, the Lord was will return. He was going to come in that time span. And he didn't come. So that Wednesday, I, because he was a friend of mine, I made fun of him. <laughs> it's like, what happened? You preached it. And then the crazy sense of this whole thing was the guy who failed in this prophetic book that the Lord is coming. I know it. I've studied it. I have 88 reasons why he's going to come. In 1989, he came out with a book saying, and he got better with the title, 89 Reasons Why the Lord Might Return. <laughs> so he learned his lesson. He put a might in there. But we're to live with the expectation. When people start setting dates, we need to be careful about that, of course. But we're to do business. Paul not only taught the Word of God, but he worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. It was his trade that he it allowed him to meet Aquila and Priscilla. And you never know when you're out doing life and you're it's like, Lord, I want to just be preaching your word and doing ministry. And and the Lord saying to Paul, but yeah, you need to sew some tents again. There's a couple of a couple I want you to meet. And just imagine if Paul uh, didn't pick up that trade as a tent maker, he may have never met a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that um, worked so well together and became such a part of Paul's ministry. And uh, serving the Lord, even when Paul wasn't around, he would leave them to continue to work when he wasn't around. So it's not that Paul didn't have the authority to receive pay for the work in ministry, but he didn't want to be a burden on the people. He wanted to be an example before the church. So Paul loved to pay his own way in ministry, not to burden anyone, but that he might set an example of how it is to follow Jesus. So yesterday, as I was doing that radio show that I mentioned earlier with uh, Brian Thomas, and the radio show is, their ministry is called Blessings to Israel, but the radio show is called Discerning the Times. And... Uh, We'd finished the show, um, two shows actually, we recorded talking about Freemasonry, only because I was raised around it, never part of it, but I, my dad was, so I have a familiarity with it. And uh, he had seen or listened to the shows that David Fiorazzo and myself had done on the topic. So he said, I knew I had to get you to talk about this. And somebody had actually 
uh, called in. They were doing a series on secret societies, and someone had said, you need to do one on the Masons. And so I don't know if that planted the seed about it. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, all I did was write a paper on it in 2015, and it's turned to something more than I thought it would. And I wasn't looking for it to turn to anything. But in the show, and this is the point I want to make, and we were talking about the falling away in our last point of the youth, and I'd mentioned to Brian that one of the appeals today of Freemasonry, they are appealing to young men in their 20s and 30s because of the structure that they have. They are teaching a structure, a secret society. And part of that appeal comes from the Dan Brown novels, from the National Treasure, Treasures uh, movies, where that FBI Mason guy was kind of like, he was the watcher over everything in those movies. And so there's an appeal of the movies, um, but they're looking for structures. And I believe the problem is, is the church has failed to set the example. We're not teaching young men how to be men today. Or uh, women are not teaching young women how they should be uh, women today. And so they're searching. They're searching for something. And if the church isn't willing to teach, then they'll find and look somewhere else. Part of the Masonic Lodge that my dad was part of and, you know, this is going back years ago when he's part of it, but they have a website. I was looking on their website, and they had this slogan that says, we make good men better. And who wouldn't want to be better if that appeal? It's the end of the year. New Year's coming. There's kind of that mentality of i got to do better for next year. i got to make some changes. And we're probably all thinking of some of those things. But they're appealing and I think it was an appeal to my dad. He didn't have faith when he joined the Masons. Uh, he didn't know Christ. And this was an appeal to him that how he could maybe strengthen his life for himself and for his family. And I think if the church isn't willing to step forward and to instruct and to teach and to set that example like Paul, like Timothy, like Salvanus, then someone else will step up and it could be to the hurt and it is to the hurt in our world today. I'd mentioned earlier, young people are leaving the church at an alarming rate at a time when many of the church is trying to be inclusive. They're watering down the gospel message. They're attempting to stay relevant. Some youth are looking for order though and discipline and they're finding it in not good places. So there were data that's coming out this year about young boy men, especially 17 and 18 years old. And, and it's really what we mean by how you define the word conservative. Uh, this could be a very liberal definition of the word conservative, but earlier this summer, Gallup published some surprising numbers. More Americans identify as socially conservative than any other time in about a decade. 38% say they were conservative or very conservative when it was 
to a social issue as opposed to 29% who said they were liberal or very liberal. A year earlier, 33% were conservative and 30% liberal. So there is a shift rightward happening. And the article went on to say, especially with young men, the ages of 17 and 18 years old. And so this, to me, then, is an opportunity if young men are searching in a world that is trying to tell young men that uh, we're not sure what a man is today, we're not sure what a woman is today. Um, (laughs) We had work done on our Internet in the church just yesterday, and they sent out... uh, information to us and I had to fill out some stuff with Comcast and uh, at the top of the page it had you know first name last name and pronoun preference and it's like come on anyways um, I am a he and that's all you need to know (laughs) I am a he (laughs) that's my preference I've been a he male and female he created them And so perhaps with young boys in school systems that are teaching that boys can be girls and that men can give birth, that they are beginning to turn towards thinking, I I don't know if this is quite right. And um, maybe they're looking and maybe there's a opportunity for the church, not only for men, but for young women as well to teach about manhood, womanhood in a biblical perspective to reach those who are searching for the truth. It's also the apostles teaching in verse 10 and 11. He says, for when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. So when we were with you, we set the example, we preach the word, we live the example before you, and then we told you, if you're not going to work, you don't get to eat. And so this communism that they had in the early church, in many of the early churches, where there was this everything coming in together, people were taking advantage of that. Uh, We just had Thanksgiving um, just a few weeks ago, and uh, when the pilgrims first came over, there was a common pot. They had this common shares that came in, and it wasn't working. And they tried it for like three years. They were actually on their contract to do this. And finally, uh, the governor there said that, you know what, you get to plant a partial for yourselves, and you can earn for yourselves. And so they still had to take care of the common need. They were under contract that uh, some say that what I've read, it took 20 years for them to get out of the seven-year contract that they had signed. And others say that it was almost 40 years before they were actually done with that contract that they signed to get over to the Americas. But it wasn't working when everything was coming into one common pot because we know how people are. If I don't have to work, but I can still eat. Then some people say, well, then I won't work, but feed me. 
And this is what was happening in the church. And so Paul set it up. He said, I told you, if you don't work, you don't eat. And besides, because they weren't working, they became busybodies. So they had time in their hands and they became busybodies within the church. Now, we have in the United States developed a welfare system that at times can do more harm than good. And I know that there are some because of mental and physical inabilities, they will never be able to support themselves. And there are those who truly need to be in a type of welfare system. But that is not the case for many who are in the system today. When our, when our church was part, and I've sat on the board of love in the name of Christ as a board member for 13 years, but when we went out and delivered uh, furniture and such to those who had need or picked up furniture. In Love, Inc., we came across people, and this is like in the operations of love in the name of Christ, there were third and fourth generation welfare people. They just, this is what they've known. And they can't break the cycle of dependency. Sometimes, People get into that system, and it seems that we're pushing that system more and more. And they're even trying to push it. Uh, I don't know if you even realize this, but um, during the pandemic of several years ago, and I hope it stays in the past, but um, there were government paychecks that started coming to people. They didn't have to go to work, and people took advantage of that. In fact, a lot of people uh, liked not going to work, and they liked getting the paycheck from the government. But this has been a plan for a number of years because there has been here in the United States, especially in the middle class, that we don't need help from the government. The government has actually taken too much of our earnings uh, to do whatever they do with it, but we don't need that help. But there is a, a plan in motion to get people used to receiving income from the government that then we get used to being in a situation where we're willing to take help, to be on welfare. And uh, it's not good. It's not good for an individual. It's not good for um, our mental capability our ability to work. God has made us to be people who work and create and to help and to depend on the Lord and not on government. We're to pray, give us this day our daily bread and not look to the mailbox and the check in the mail. Sometimes that may be a need, but it shouldn't be the norm. And in this situation, it made people not only disorderly, but busybodies. They had idle hands, 1 Timothy 5.13. Besides, they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossip, busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now, here's the thing. We think, oh, busybody. Oh, she's just a busybody. Look at Peter, what he writes about. He uses busybody, same word, but he puts it in a category that we wouldn't like, oh, He's just a murderer. Just don't pay any attention to him. You know, we might say that about a busybody, but Peter in 1 Peter 4:15 he says, "But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody 
in other people's matters. So Peter puts that busybody into some pretty heavy things, a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and a busybody. Falling into some pretty bad company there, reminding us, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So verse 12, Now those who are such we command to exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So I've often experienced after a hard day's work, a good meal and rest is often all I want to look forward to. Work tends to keep us out of trouble and keeps us from idle hands. So we know that in our world we have two foreign wars going on. There are many wars happening and um, attacks going on all around the world. But currently we have the Russia-Ukrainian war and Israel and Hamas going on. And even yesterday, uh, Vladimir Zelensky was here in the United States seeking money again in this past week. We've been in the last week basically hearing from our government saying to our politicians, if you guys don't vote this money through, again, billions are asking for, I think it was $61 billion this time. If you don't vote, vote this through, then it's going to be your sons, our daughters, your uncles and aunts going over and fighting in Russia. So we're getting threatened. But it is 650, the 658th day of this Russian-Ukrainian conflict. And uh, there were attacks that came upon Ukraine's capital, Kiev, today, uh, injuring 45. Uh, President Biden warning Republicans if they would give Russia a Christmas gift if they fail to provide additional military aid to Ukraine. Zelensky, again, coming. But our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is not agreeing unless they take concessions. The White House has concessions on border security of our own country. So they're at least showing a front right now. I don't know where it's going to go. Biden did give an additional $200 million in military aid package um, this week. And uh, here's the thing. Uh, these are bullet points that I pulled off. Disclassified U.S. intelligence reports that Russians have had 315,000 dead um, and nearly 90% of the personnel it had when the conflict began. They're either dead or injured. And yet um, they didn't mention anything about the Ukrainians. And I have uh, a pastor over in Ukraine and uh, they live in a section where the war hasn't come into their area. But he often, uh, in communicating with him, he talks about how the men are just afraid. They're afraid to even come to church because they're afraid that the government uh, will recruit them and just, I mean, you're going to church, a van pulls up, puts you in the van, you go to boot camp and you don't even go home. Your family doesn't even know why you're gone. At this point, the family knows why and they're going off to war. And so they're running out of soldiers. This article said nothing about that. So I'm thinking they're only spending it 
to the positive on the Ukrainian side, which not talking about the negative in Ukraine, and there is negative there as well. But in Israel and Hamas, this is the thing that's really opened my eyes. Um, 68 days since October 7th, 1,400 plus Israelis have been killed, 138 hostages, uh, 444 soldiers have been killed, and over 9,000 injured. Uh, rockets fired by Hamas towards southern and central Israel, and they're coming out of Lebanon, um, also by Hezbollah to the north, and that really picked up today as well. On December 3rd, the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, began ground operations into southern Gaza, and Hamas on December 1st violated the terms of the ceasefire and uh, put a, that had put a pause on the fighting, and Israel resumed operations again. Israel is getting pressured to back off, and Israel is determined to eliminate Hamas. And uh, I, I don't have a problem with that, but what really was eye-opening to me was the response that we see here in our own country, where there are more people, it seems, supporting the Palestinian people and Hamas, even though they see, and I, when I see the videos of what happened on October 7th, it just turns my stomach, it makes me angry, and yet people deny it, that it even took place. They say it's Israeli propaganda. And uh, I told my wife the very next day we saw a picture so Hamas did horrific things. They took video of it. They posted it, which is crazy. But many in the world are rallying to their defense. They're saying, well, they couldn't help it. They've been oppressed. So they're acting out. How can you blame them? But they did unthinkable things. And yet on the next day, I saw a video uh, there in Gaza, and they were holding up a beheaded baby boy saying that Israel had beheaded this boy. And I saw it, and I thought, wait a minute, that's what they were doing in Israel. So they're trying to flip it. And then I told Lily, I said, I think I've seen that picture before. I think I have seen it actually years ago. It, they just recycled an old picture. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was a real picture then, even but they were recycling something from the past. But it has surprised me of what's happening in our country on campuses. But it doesn't surprise me because it's another sign of the falling away. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Let no one deceive you by any means that the day will not come unless a falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so there are some who... Support Hamas denies the atrocities that took place on October 7th. I saw this on Facebook. I had to put it in here. So there are those who just deny. Hamas didn't do that. Israel's lying. It's an op. Uh, they made that up. And so this was on Facebook today. I clipped it out. It could have been Instagram. I'm not sure. But Gaza has no power. But everyone is working phones. Gaza has no internet but everyone posts videos. Gaza has no fuel, but they keep launching rockets. Gaza has no Israeli hostages, but they keep releasing them. 
Just think about that. God can use nations to trouble Israel, and he has a very time in history to unify them and bring them back. What I know as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the word of God in Genesis 12, 3. God saying, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so I, I want to be on the blessing and bless Israel. So the apostles' encouragement, 13 through 15. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our words in this epistle, note that person. Do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Do not count him as an enemy. So Jesus, in his three-step process, I said, in the third step of Matthew 18 and verse 17, that you are to treat them as a tax collector. That's treating them as an enemy. But here, Paul is saying, don't count them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. They're family, but let them be ashamed. Let them know that he's doing wrong. But don't grow weary in doing good. So we're in difficult season in our nation. But in this difficult season in our nation, we're not to grow weary in doing good. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, For in due seasons we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. So in church life, sometimes there are those who walk in disorderly fashion, and there are those who are busybody, those, Lord, that need to be corrected. Um, and we can do that in the church. But the purpose is to gain the brother or sister, bring them back to faith. But Paul reminds us, don't count them as an enemy, but to admonish them that they would be ashamed, that they would come back in that relationship. So we are not to grow weary in doing good. In troubling times, it's easy to get discouraged. But Paul is encouraging us, don't grow weary in doing good. That is being faithful with the things that God has gifted us, serving Christ, serving others, and awaiting the Lord until he returns in Luke 19:13 to do business until he comes. We are to, in that process, then heed the apostles' command to walk orderly according to the traditions, teaching, and the teachings of the word of God. We are to emulate the apostles' example by not being a burden to others, by following the apostles' teaching, by laboring with our own hands, by working in quietness, by eating our own bread. We are to receive the apostles' encouragement to not grow weary in doing good, at the same time admonishing those who need to be corrected. And finally, we are to know the peace and the grace of the apostles' benediction. Verse 16 and may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The interesting thing about this epistle is that Paul began speaking about God's grace. He actually put parentheses around it. 
And so he, on the outer side of the parentheses, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, grace to you. And 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So here he had this outer parentheses of grace. And then just inside the grace, he said, 2 Thessalonians 1.2, grace to you and the peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just inside the grace, he gives us peace. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. So he surrounded this whole epistle with grace and peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. And we want to just take a few moments now. And Dave, if you could come and distribute the communion for us and just take a few moments to wait upon the Lord and receive communion tonight that we might experience the Lord's grace and his peace. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching tonight and being able to look at this epistle throughout this year and looking at some of the things going on in our world as well. Lord, there are troubling times that we find ourselves in. Help us, Lord, to hold true to your word and to the teachings of your word, to occupy our hands with the things of God. And Lord, may we know the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.